Amen. And good morning. Uh, if we haven't met yet, oh, I got a good morning back. Good morning. Thank you. This room's going to interact with me today. I like it. Um, I'm Kathy Haug, and I recognized even just in the last couple weeks, there's been a few new friends and family coming in and joining our room. And so if we haven't met yet, I'd love to meet you. Come find me afterwards. Uh, I'm a part of the teaching team here in the auditorium and at Third, and also um, serve as a sent missionary out of Third Church, working with college students and faculty on campuses with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And um, I'm curious also if you have any great winter hacks turning into the new season. I would receive those as well, as a person who's always on the cold side. Um, Phoebe and I were just actually, we just came back from camp. Students are off for a retreat this weekend up in central Iowa. And our strategy was, it's freezing or below, but let's go zip lining Because that makes perfect sense as a way to totally jump into winter, right? So um, that's one way to do it. Tell me your tack, like your hacks and tricks. I would like to learn from you all. Um, I want to pick up and continue our conversation, even from before the service, if you caught the reading of four chapters that we're going through today. Um, And then I sent us to talk with each other a little bit about how are we experiencing being in the book of Revelation. Uh, I was chatting with some folks who have been in some texting groups for years with each other, and they said, it's like crickets in our texting group sometimes, because People are like, I don't know where to start, or how do I possibly put into words what I'm thinking about? So just again, acknowledging the complexity. And if you're new to Third Church and you're joining us in Revelation, that is as close to jumping in the deep end as the expression could allow for, right? And it's a deep end with no floaties and weird stuff floating in the water. I mean, it's, I get it. So thank you. And today we are looking at our longest bit of text as we're in 15 through 18. So if you were with us last week, um, we were in John's vision, and we were doing the the chapters 12 to 14, and Darren took us through that text and introduced us to some new players in the vision. So we learned about the dragon and the beasts that serve the dragon, and those who would have heard the letter received this in the first century would have heard kind of the leaders of the world reflected in, those char- in the characters of the beasts in particular. And so they would have, in their contemporary time, thought of Roman emperors and rulers of the day. And these were people and powers who were demanding not only their allegiance but their worship and seemed to offer so many things that they really couldn't provide. And the challenge out of last week was for us to say, is our hope in God or is our hope in government, earthly leaders and powers, right? Which kingdom are we actually citizens of? And that very theme is going to continue to build in these chapters as we get toward the latter part of the letter. And we're going to see in 15 through 18 that there is this sure evidence that the kingdom of God cannot coexist for long. And ultimately, not at all. It will not suffer to stand alongside kingdoms of evil and the powers of empire that wage against it. And so you've seen this image, if you've been here on some of our slides, of these kind of loop 
graphics. And the book of Revelation is like the series of turns and loops that drives forward toward culmination. And we're kind of entering a new loop and we're entering a stage actually of acceleration and culmination in this middle portion around the judgment and defeat of evil. And hold on, we're almost to the turn, like we're so close. We have next week, and then we're actually going to get to new creation, and it's going to be worth waiting for. So hang in there with us. But today, we're going to be in 15, and we're going to be taking this loop and feeling the acceleration of judgment. And so if you want to follow along, you can grab one of the Bibles from the back. We're on page 1225 in the Bibles in the room. Um, If not, just go basically to the very end. And you're very close. So we're in Revelation 15 to start. So what's interesting about this scene starting in 15 is that John is now, of course, seeing a new part of the vision. And he's in a new place, actually. He's in the temple, right? So now he describes an image where there's this glassy sea and there's the temple, And it starts off and says in 15.1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last because with them God's wrath is completed. Okay, so this is the culmination, right? We're saying it's coming to a completion to its fullness. And if you look ahead to the end of 15 in verse 8, it says the temple fills with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And then it says and no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now this is important, right? And if we know some of those Old Testament references, we know that you couldn't enter the temple, right, as one who was not holy, the very holiest of holy places as for God and his holiness alone, right? And in the same way, no one can enter this temple, right? This new, this heavenly temple John is envisioning until the cup of wrath, these bowls or cups are fully poured out, till it's done, till evil is finally and wholly eradicated. And so we feel the tension with John of its coming to its great end. So I want to talk a little bit more about judgment this morning. And this is where 15 and 16 are really sitting in our text. So when we think about judgment, probably a lot of different mental images come to mind. I think this is one, the like, the pointing circle of shame, like you did it, right? That accusation, the condemnation. Uh, There's an image um, from justice, right? A just image of the scales and saying, what is equity and justice? Those words, justice and judgment, of course, are closely related. Right? And then we have another maybe legal imagery of the gavel. Right, There's a verdict. There's a decision, a judgment made. These all have their place, but I think it's helpful to acknowledge we've all got some stuff and baggage around our ideas of judgment. Do we not? <laughs> it's a little bit of that that we all carry in different ways. But I want us to think about judgment in, in the sense that since evil marred creation, right? since the moment evil marred the perfection of creation, the verdict has already been in. Right? The holy God cannot coexist with evil. It is inevitable that evil will 
end. Creation, all of creation, cannot fully be with creator until all evil is eradicated. And this is the means to the end that will lead to the new creation. So judgment isn't the end in and of itself, friends, right? Judgment is actually the means to the end, which will be a new beginning. Because the end is God's very mission and heart. And nothing, nothing will thwart the great purposes of God that are unfolding to liberate, save, and redeem all of the world. Nothing. It will be completed. So we've been learning about Revelation as also a type of literature called apocalyptic literature, right? And that word apocalyptic just means revealing. It's a revealing. That's where we get revelation in the English, right? And when you think about that kind of literature, we know that many of the images are symbolic in nature, right? And as you look in, in this text, we have to keep reminding ourselves, it's not about figuring out all the symbolism, right, and getting it just right and drawing the lines, but it is important to remember in the symbolic nature of it that symbolism is primarily a way that humans try to grapple with concepts and, and co concepts that are beyond them, right? Kind of beyond what we can actually grasp. And if you look to chapter 16 next, 16 is going to unfold the pouring out of those seven bowls. Um, the NIV, NIV uses the word bowl, but it's really, it's kind of a cup or a chalice. So think about even the image of the cup of wrath from the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is bringing it. It's a cup being poured out. And 16 takes us through all of those seven cups, and there's no lingering like in the earlier ones, the trumpets and the seals, right? It's all seven happened right in a row. And it's so fascinating because if you go through them and maybe as you listened, you heard, you start to hear some of the echoes of the seven-day creation in the account, right? The, the, boar, the bowl is poured out on the land and the sea and the rivers and springs and on the sun. Are you hearing some of the echoes, right? And it's like in creation in the Genesis account, which is also not really written to be a like, precise historical account, right? There's all of this language that says, ah, this is kind of how we can get our heads around creation a little bit. And um, in, in that Genesis story, we should hear this echo. And just like we can't quite fully imagine how God just speaks and all of this comes into creation, similarly, we're limited in our imagination to understand how, in a similar way, there could be the complete and utter undoing and destruction of all evil. Does that make sense? Do you hear that parallel a little bit? The creation and the destruction? And there's this array of vivid imagery all throughout these judgment chapters. War, famine, plagues, earthquakes. They use all of our human paradigms for destruction. But it's so interesting because God could create with a word. And likewise, with a word, could he not eradicate all evil? Like that's the power of God. And it's actually like his character. 
A book we're using, Michael Gorman is quoted, he says, as the omnipotent one who spoke creation into existence, God hardly needs to resort to literal violence for the cessation of evil. Isn't that interesting? He hardly needs to resort to violence. I, I know this is, this is complicated. I don't want to pretend I understand all about how, how God works and the judgment, but people of God, I do think I want to say, I think we should be careful. I think we ought to be a people who are cautious as we look at the world and are tempted to interpret things as divine judgment. I think we ought to be cautious. We can say um, with some um, confidence that judgment will come, right? That's what Revelation said. It is it cannot coexist. Evil cannot coexist with a good and perfect God. But it is reckless and it's hubristic to assign, interpret, categorize things, assuming we know, right, we know God's intent. So I just want to give us a cautionary word and hold it for myself. Because in chapter 16, we see the very character of God. I mean, look at 16.7. It says, yes, Lord God Almighty, just and true are your judgments, right? Again and again, the heavenly say, you are just, you are true, you are good, right? So I'm gonna invite us to caution and even take it further because there's a greater danger yet in participating in evil in order to uh, execute judgments ourselves, Right, as self-proclaimed agents of God's judgment lies an even more sinister trap and temptation for us. And I say that to myself as I think about judgment. Even before I was following Jesus, I remember I just had this strong sense of outrage about the world and what was fair or not and how people should or shouldn't behave. And I don't know if anyone can relate, but as I looked at how God was dealing with, you know, doling out judgment and helping people understand and put things to right, apparently I thought God needed my help. And um, I am a little embarrassed, but I bring this with, I feel like you can hold this, hold this with me, but I bring you evidence of my need to help God um, in the form of my high school yearbook, um, which I do not bring for just the bad pictures, which are indeed there. But some of the things I said and captured for all perpetuity in my uh, attempt to assist God, thinking wasn't doing enough. This, I was not following Jesus. Again, hold this in mind. Um, but so I said a few things. This is before social media. Um, and apparently I thought they needed to be put into writing, which I regret deeply. Um, let me give you a couple gems. <laughs> okay, here's the first one. This is a, a little spread on dating relationships. The person before me said, try to date as many people as possible. Everybody at one time or another is a dog, and you can either be a player or get played. That was one sophomore's theory. Thank you. In contrast, Kathy Seavers, that's my maiden name, senior, believes, don't date until you can vote or legally drink. Two reasons, population crisis and disease. <laughs> mm-hmm, it gets worse, it gets worse. Um, 
on the page that reads, last words, seniors say it best, and they do not, I, this was my quote. Kathy Seaver says, and I quote, Avoid drinking, fornication, smoking, and other general acts of stupidity that place you in the same IQ category that my bedroom door is in. No offense to my bedroom door. <laughs> A public apology to the class of 1997, Fort Dodge Senior High. Oh. Friends, think before you post things and write them in yearbooks. Mercy. Lord have mercy. Guess what, friends? God doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our help in the judgment of the world. He's going to eradicate all evil in me, in us, and he's going to do it completely. He's going to do it justly and in line with his perfect character. In fact, I mean, look at the best evidence of how our holy good God addresses sin and evil. What does God do? He comes closer. He doesn't stand and judge far off from the words of a high school yearbook. He comes near, and he puts on flesh, and he moves into the neighborhood, and he knows our troubles and trials. And in the end, he doesn't act in violence, but God actually takes violence upon himself in his own body and in Jesus, who at the end says, it is finished. Just like the angel did at the end of chapter 16 in Revelation. Did you hear it? It is done. He will do it. And that is good news for us, friends. And I say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for rescuing me from myself. That's the Jesus I want to follow. That's the one. That's the kingdom I want to be a part of. So who are we following? Where are allegiances? Where do they lie? Right, and that's that undercurrent in this text of these middle chapters as the rulers of the world, right, enter the vision. And a great world power is actually named in these chapters that must be destroyed. Do you remember the city name? It was Babylon. Right, we started hearing, Babylon is fallen. And so that's where we're going to go. Chapters 17 and 18 are really about the fall of Babylon. So if you want to go back to your text... The scene shifts yet again. We've moved from the pouring out, the completion of these seven bowls, right? And now John is swept up, an angel says, in the spirit, he's in a new scene. He was in the temple, a temple scene, and now he is in a desert, okay? So you got to imagine a desert for this second vivid scene. And in the desert, we meet a new character. We meet a prostitute, it says, come, I'll show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. This is 17 verse 1. And with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. And they describe how she's lavishly dressed on this scarlet beast, quite an image in the desert, 
right, with things, titles written on her forehead, mystery, Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes. So when the listeners of this word would have heard this, they would have certainly had some things in mind. And I, I love actually in chapter 17, I love in verse 9, it's like, this calls for a mind of, with wisdom. And, and the angel like explains everything. Okay, here's what this is. Here's what this is. It's kind of amazing. It's like its own built-in guide, guidebook, right? And it, it describes the, the, the scene and says, who is what and what is what. And in the end, if you look at um, the last verse of 17, it says, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. The woman is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. So a contemporary listener would have had Rome in mind. Like Babylon, they would have associated with Rome, kind of the great city. And this woman kind of encapsulates that empire, right? That Babylonian historical empire reference. So they would have had Rome in mind. I, and, I mean, there's, other, there's lots of little clues, like there's the seven hills. And I mean, if Rome had like a town slogan, it would have been like city of seven hills, right? Like we're like Pella, city of refuge. So that would have been like their slogan. So everyone's like, oh, okay, I'm tracking the great city. But there's evidence in here that we can read it not just as Rome, but as a larger idea of empire, as kind of a larger concept or power. For example, look in 17. If you see um, in verse 2, it says, All the kings, of the, the kings of the earth were committing adultery with her. All the inhabitants were intoxicated. Right? So it's not just like one city, the kings of the earth. Right? And it talks about that water that she's by, right? And it says the waters are peoples, multitudes, nations, languages. That's verse 15. So the implication is we can, yes, we can hear Rome, but we actually are invited to think about this woman as representing a broader power that I'll call empire with a capital E, right? There's a lot of empires that have risen and fallen over time. But she represents this great empire that is in contrast to the kingdom of God. And if you study through this, we don't have a lot of time, but I, I want to give some characteristics or qualities of empire that we see in the text. And I think we can see when you look across history, too, at various powers that have risen to dominance. So here's a few interesting qualities. Um, Empire is marked by a seductive system of domination. So it, it actually holds an allure for people of power, wealth, security, but it actually primarily leads through domination and conquest and control. All right, empire is territorially, territorially and ideologically expansive and ever increasingly expansive in its nature. It needs to spread. It has a desire to continue to grow, dominate, spread. It often presents as having something that benefits the people. For Rome, the, for Rome, um, the Pax Romana, right? The peace of Rome. We will assure peace in your time in these troubled times. Asterisks, we will do that by destroying and assimilating all that you love, right? It is a false peace a facade. 
Ultimately, empire stands opposed to the nature of the true God and his kingdom. Empire often falls from a self-inflicted wound, right? This is true historically. I asked Chris, why did Rome fall? And he's like, I love this conversation. And we went on for a long time. It's not a simple answer. But one of the reasons Rome falls is like many empires, it outgrows its ability. It's so driven by the power to conquer and expand and be more wealthy and more powerful that eventually it cannot actually reign and rule over its territories. And the people, oppressed peoples, rise up against them. And then if there's plagues and famine and frozen rivers, it all falls. Often these are self-inflicted wounds, right? So even though there are many historical empires, I want you to hear capital E empire in the woman and the prostitute, right, who represents Babylon, which represents empire. I know that's a little conceptual, but it's important because all the peoples at all the power levels in society, Revelation says they were all taken by her, right? Not just the most powerful But at every level, the merchants, the people, the wealthy, all taken in. And as we read that in chapter 18 moves toward the fall and destruction of empire, we have to actually see that this then includes us. It includes the people of God, Christians, the church that has been seduced by this same empire. And what, what does it say in chapter 18, right? It announces the fall of the empire. But I love in verse 4, the voice says from heaven what? It says, come out of her, my people. Come out of Babylon. Come out of empire. This power, these forces that would seem to be for your good but are actually evil. That come out of her, that's actually the same word that's used to describe like when Jesus would cast out a demon. It would be exercised from a person. Uh, And the idea is we need to be taken out of empire, of Babylon, as a people, the people of God. I really appreciated returning to a talk I heard um, by Scott Besnecker at Urbana 18. It's our missions convention for students in North America. And he gave a talk on Revelation 18. And the challenge was that not only does the church need to be exercised from empire, called out of empire, but that empire actually needs to be exercised from the church, right? Brought out of us. He says there's an invitation to divest from empire and to also expel empire that has invested itself in us. Because, friends, instead of being salt and light in the world, too often the people of God have become complicit with the powers of empire, and it's so dreadfully subtle at times, right? It's not overt. We can do like, oh, that's a good Christian, bad Christian, but we are all tempted by that power and the luxuries and the allure of empire. And I, had, I went back to my journal from that Urbana and all these notes I'd written from Scott's talk, I was so convicted. And he would say, I started looking at my own life and I would catch a, a whiff of Babylon, is how he would write about it. He's like, when I looked at my investment portfolio, when I looked at how I spent my money, 
when I looked at what I did or didn't do to care for creation, I caught a whiff of Babylon. And I wonder if we stopped to look at our own lives, would we catch a little whiff of Babylon, of empire? Right, that whole section that just goes on and on about like all the luxuries that are in Babylon, do you remember that? In 18, like the merchants and all the cargo, all that, it just goes on. And I think it's important to note that a lot of what's happening here is about, um, it is about our consuming, it is about our longings for more, our never being sated, our willingness to subjugate and oppress other people to serve our own economic ends. All of that is here. And it's not new to human history, but it's also naive for us to say, well, that's not us anymore. Are we still willing to create strata and systems that force people to do just about anything for just about nothing so we can have cheap goods? Yeah. My consumerism fuels Babylon, fuels empire. Right? We have unfettered access to like the resources of the world. And most generations just tend to say, well, I'll use what I need now. Right? The next generation will have their own problems. Right? Economy has historically always been valued over ecology, but it has a whiff of empire. So what if we told the truth as a church? And what if we looked closely and saw that we might actually be a part of this? In Scott's most pointed note that I wrote, I wrote ouch in big letters by it. He said, what if we looked and saw that we were guilty as a church of bringing a tainted gospel? This is where it stings. He says, like blankets with smallpox, an infected gospel comes with racism, consumerism, greed, patriarchy, and it seems to warm and comfort, but ultimately kills. Ouch. Lord, help us, right? It says, come out of her. This has been the invitation of God's people for all time. This is quoting Jeremiah when God said, come out of her. And so the invitation is for us afresh as we wait for the new creation and for God's promise that he will eradicate all evil. Will we come out of her? Will we, will we say, yes, Lord, we want your kingdom and not empire? So the worship team is going to come up, and I want to invite us to reflect. I have two lists on the screen that have these qualities of empire and kingdom. And you can read them down, and you can read them across and see the peerings. And this is actually from a, a podcast and, and blogger, Eugene Kim from New Wine Collective. And, and he writes about how there's a little bit of worldly empire and God's kingdom mixed into almost every human culture and system and Christianity. And the invitation is to live actually in this kingdom reality. But sometimes like these worldly things can be so embedded that like we can hardly even recognize them. And so as you look at the list, I just want you to think for a minute as you look at the words, do you 
Do you recognize some of the marks of empire in our spirituality and in religion? Do you see them as you look at that list? Do you see those in some of our social and political systems? And ultimately, we ask, is this in me? Do I see this in me, Lord? And so I want to give you just a minute to reflect and say, Lord, would you show me where kind of I am actually seduced and a part of some of these things in some way, and I want to come out and into your kingdom. Right? You can see how the words pair. Like, I want to move from fear to love, from competition into communion. And I'd like to pray for us, and, and you'll have a chance to respond, and, and I invite you, you could respond and coming to receive communion in a, in a tangible embodied act of repenting and receiving. Um, you can also stand and worship God and ask for his mercy toward us. So let's bow our heads. And God, we just do pray that you would help us to tell the truth about ourselves. And God, we thank you that in your goodness and holiness that you will not allow evil to persist and it will be eradicated. And we want to come out of the, of the ways we've participated in the kingdoms not of you, in empire. And we want you to draw out of us anything that isn't of you. And so as we pause, would you just shine a light on maybe one of those things that we're tempted to whether it's our feelings of longing for, for wealth or security or ease or, or you know, you know what you need to shine a light on. And Lord, as even those things come to light for me, I say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways I'm full of judgment. I want to control. I want power. I'm afraid a lot. Would you ask God to forgive you and call you out? And now, friends, as you look and receive the mercy of God, be reminded of the qualities of kingdom that are so beautiful. We know them in part now and we will know them fully. As things aren't just restored, but they're made fully new. Would you ask God to fill your life and our life as the people of God with all of these markers of the kingdom? so we pray every week your kingdom come I want to mean it I want us to mean it as your people and we want to see it so receive our worship as we say 
you're the one true king. You're the one. Call us out of empire and into your kingdom. Gracious God, have mercy.